Test, test. There we go. All right. Now let's try this. Which one is it? That seems to be working. Okay. So, greetings. Let's pray and we'll get started. Father, we bless you. We thank you for this evening as we study your word together. We um, we pray that you would help us to to be to prepare our hearts to receive from your word. Lord, I pray as we look into the mirror of your word, we would not be the same after we've looked as we were before, but that you you would be present here not only in your word but by your spirit and continuous progress of transformation in our lives. Father, pray that you would help me as I'm speaking, sharing, teaching that that you would reveal, that you would give me wisdom and reveal what it is that you would have taught and spoken this evening. Well, we we uh, just trust you and thank you and bless you and offer this evening to you as we worship you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. All right. So, having we, we finally got the audio fixed, so it, we should be going out audio right now. Yeah, it should be. It does? Is it working right now? Oh, sweet. That's good news. Um, I can't see from that screen back there, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, y'all gonna have to help me making sure I stay on where I'm supposed to be here. I'll look, turn and look as well. But we're gonna start, we're gonna go through chapter four tonight. Last week we did, um, uh, kind of an intro to chapter four by talking about the watchers. And but uh, and who the watchers are and what they were because we're going to bring them up tonight. But tonight um, we're going to um, actually get into the chapter. We'll read through the chapter and then kind of break it down afterwards. Um, so as I always say up front, I'd like to mention my sources. Um, the main source that I'm using is the work of Dr. Wendy Witter, um, uh, who is a Ph.D. in Near Eastern Studies from the University of the Free State. Uh, in South Africa. She's a master's degree in Hebrew and Semitic studies from University of Wisconsin in Madison, and she's an MDiv from uh, Grand Rapids Theological Seminary, almost at cemeteries. <laughs> That's a joke, you know, we, we, among pastors. Yeah, did you go to cemetery? Yeah, I went to cemetery. Anyway, um, uh, the study that that she did was in, in um, the course that she did is in, a, is in a software called Logos Bible Software. If you're looking for or interested in an amazing Bible software, I highly recommend Logos. I use it uh, immensely and deeply. It's, um, it's extremely academic, and you can use it to whatever level you want. You can just get a, a small library, or you can go hog wild and, and have a, you know, a huge library. Um, so when we're talking about the book of Daniel, what, how do most people think about the book of Daniel? What's kind of like the pop culture way of thinking about the book of Daniel? So this is worth 15 points right here. Yeah, the fun part, the yucky part. Okay. And, but most people think of Daniel, they think about like Revelation, end times, right? Like some kind of a key to end times, especially when we get into the second half. Um, there's like, we're looking for the secret key. Um, the, the problem, the, the the problem is, is that all scripture, when it was written, had a purpose. It had a purpose then, it fulfilled its purpose in its time, and it has a purpose now. 
But for us to understand how to apply it now, we need to understand what was going through the minds of the writers when they were writing it. What were their circumstances? What were the hearers hearing when they were listening? And so um, that's our goal, to first discover that. And in discovering that, what we discover is that, that there are universal application as the Word of God. It is timeless. But it's timeless when we, when we can dig in appropriately and understand it in its context. All right. So the theology of Daniel, it's, it's all, all about God's sovereignty. It's all about God's sovereignty. And we're going to see why that is in just a minute. Um, and his continuing care for his people. And it teaches a lot of theology through story. 40% of the Bible is story. So um, uh, we are meant to make the connections as we read the story and to pull the theology out of it as we're going through it. And so, um, so we'll be doing that as we go through. Um, uh, so why this, why this theology? Why this topic? Because the, the Israelites, um, I need you to click on my slides, Sally. There we go. The Israelites are going through exile shock, right? They have been, uh, they've been carried out of the land taken into exile, into Babylon. The temple's gone. The land's gone. The king's gone. Um, uh, does God still care about us? Is, is, um, is he able? Is he sovereign? And they're in the middle of all of this upheaval and turmoil. And where is God in the middle of this? This is one of the, why the main, one of the main themes of Daniel is, yes, he's sovereign. Yes, he has a plan. Yes, he's working through even these things we don't understand when you're in the middle of them. And we, as we go through Daniel, what we discover is in the beginning, he totally trusted in the sovereignty of God, though he may not have understood why they were there or what's going on. But by the end, he begins to discover what were or what are some of the purposes of it and what God's doing through it. How else does God get a faithful follower of Yahweh into the court of uh, the king of Babylon? How else does that happen? And so it begins to make us ask questions when we look at things going through our lives and, and, and uh, how how might God want to use us in the middle of the circumstances we find us, even when we find ourselves in places in the middle of things that aren't pleasant, that we didn't plan, that we don't like, and cause us to question? What is it that our faithfulness can reveal about the God of heaven to those around us? Who might we have an opportunity to touch in a way we would never be able to touch? Who might God reach in a way that he might not otherwise been able to reach because we are trusting him in the middle of all that. And that's what's going on in Daniel. Um, so the structure of Daniel, there's three ways of looking at it. It's two different genres. Actually, it's a mixture of genres, right? You've got, you've got the first six books are very much narrative or story. Um, you get the, the second six not books, but chapters, that are a mix of apocryphal and prophetic. Yet, we're going to find some story there. And in the first six, yet, we'll find some prophecy there. So it's very unusual among the books of Scripture in how it mixes the genres. Um, we get date formulations that are unusual. He, he brackets many of the stories, many of uh, um, the things he's talking about by these date formulations. And, and so because it's unusual, because it's not normally done this way, it's something to pay attention to. And we've, 
we've done that. Um, and then we get this thing that it's written in two languages. We get the first chapter, and we're, we're going to dive into more into this. But it's written in two languages. It's written in Hebrew. It's written in Aramaic. And what, we're going to focus in on that for a minute, um, uh, the, the Hebrew and the Aramaic. Daniel chapter 1 is the preface to the whole book, and this is in Hebrew. And remember that date formulation. It literally, Daniel chapter 1 covers the, the timeline of the whole book. And it's written in Hebrew. Um, Daniels 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic. And what's going on? You've got Jews in the courts of Gentile kings. And so you get this language that's outside of Israel dealing with languages of the uh, one of what becomes one of the languages of the world. Um, and uh, the, it, this section is written in this language. And then we switch back from chapters 8 to chapter 12 back into Hebrew. What's going on there? Because we're, the, the Israelites are back out of um, uh, uh, Babylon. They're back in the homeland, the, the, uh, the, the remnant who came back. And it's speaking to what they're going to experience as a result of being back in the homeland in those chapters. All right. So our outline, is, is, um, uh, as Diane said earlier, you, this is the, the, the parts with all the stories. Um, and we're going we're gonna to go through these a, a little bit more. But the first six are the stories for, that most of us are familiar with or we've heard before. And the second half are, are Daniel's visions. Now, what's fascinating to me, in the first half, other people have dreams and visions, and Daniel interprets. When we get to the second half, Daniel has dreams and visions and needs help interpreting. And, uh, and so we'll, when, we, when we get to that, we're not too far from diving into to some of that. We'll, we'll see that. But there's this clear break between these two halves. Now, I'm going to share something new that I haven't shared with you before on the structure. This is from Dr. John Lennox. I um, sat under him teaching through Daniel back in it's either 2005, 2006. Amazing. I'll tell you, if you get a chance, Google Dr. John Lennox. Google his teaching on, um, uh, on Daniel. And you will be blessed listening to it. It's absolutely amazing. Um, I remember uh, listening to him teach, you know, sitting there going, wow, I know I've opened the Bible before. In fact, I know I've read it before, but when I hear him teach, it's like he brings out so much. It's like I didn't even know there was a Bible. Is it that, that amazing? So um, anyway, this is one of the, his observations and uh, one of the um, uh, study partners, uh, Dr. David Gooding, I believe, um, who had come up with this structure as they were studying through Daniel. When you break Daniel down just on the chapter basis, the first half of the first five chapters and the second half being chapters 6 through 10, what you see is a part A and part B that correspond to one another. In part A, Daniel's in the Babylonian court. He refuses to eat the king's food, and his friends are, are vindicated. So it's all about the Babylonian court. In chapter 6... It's all of a sudden now about the Medo-Persian court. And in the same way he refused to eat the king's food, he's refusing to obey the king's command to, to obey, to pray, um, uh, to refrain from praying to God. And in the end, he's vindicated. And then we jump to the next uh, set of chapters. In the beginning, chapters 2 and 3, we have two images. You have Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of an image, and then he actually builds an image. And then in chapter 7 and 8, we have two visions of beasts. In chapter 7, there's four beasts. In chapter 8, there's two beasts. Really fascinating because there's more correspondence. And there's a reason why I'm bringing up this structure that we'll, we'll touch on in a minute. So stick with me as we're going through this. The more you can understand about Daniel from an overview, 
the more the individual stories and uh, pieces make sense. It's kind of like a puzzle, right? When you put a puzzle together, you look at the whole thing, and then you have to look at the little pieces to see where they fit. So we're going to read a story tonight, and we're going to learn where, uh, all about that story, but we're going to see that story is actually in a bigger, bigger uh, um, is, is one piece of the puzzle in the whole thing. And there's, a, there's an intentionality to how this is put together. So and finally, you have chapters 4 and 5 are two kings disciplined, which are, uh, and well, I'll touch on the importance of that in a minute. We're going to be doing 4 tonight. And then you have chapters 9 and then 10 and 11, two writings explained. So there's this correspondence. Um, when you're studying the ancient works of literature, ancient writers didn't write the way we write. They didn't have chapters um, they didn't break it down. They would use structures like this. And the other thing, hey, okay, so for 62 points, what's another structure that they use um, uh, in, in, that's very often used in the scriptures in the ancient world? That's right, the chiastic or chiastic structure. Chiasms or chiasms, you can say it either way. Um, uh, and we're going to look at one in a moment. But here's my point. How genius is it to write this way? This is planned. This isn't accidental. How genius is it to think these things out? And then we're going to see another structure hidden in it. And as we dive down, we see smaller structures hidden in those structures as well. All right. So, um, chapter 1 summary uh, was was what? Nebuchadnezzar reverently places God's vessels in, in his idol's temple. Daniel and others refuse to indulge in pagan impurities. The court... Officials are sympathetic with him. Daniel and his colleagues' um, physical and mental powers are vindicated, and they're promoted to high office. You remember this? Remember these stories here? I don't want to go into detail. I'm just kind of reminding us of the story and what happened. They come in. They're being they're they're being carried to exile, and and now they are being put through three years of intensive. University of King's College, King Nebuchadnezzar College, right? And they're going through all that, and yet they've learned to stand faithful to God, even in the midst of the pagan court. Um, What's the central theme? The providential hand of God is behind all the events that happen. God gave. God gave what? God gave Nebuchadnezzar. God gave Jehoiakim to Nebuchadnezzar. God gave favor to Daniel. God gave wisdom, skills, and gifts. Important questions when we left chapter 1. What were they? How is God at work? How is God going to win? Why does God allow himself to look bad? How can we live in exile? What's the relationship between faith and culture? To what extent do we assimilate? All these questions are brought up in Daniel as we, see, as we go through the stories. All right, chapter 2, summary. Now, this is where we switch from Hebrew over to Aramaic. And, and, and it begins... Another chiastic, it uh, begins a chiastic structure. All of the Aramaic is put into a chiastic structure. And what do you have? You have Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 are about four kingdoms replaced by a fifth. One is the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, the other is the visions that are coming up. Daniel 3 and Daniel 6 are about individuals facing death for faithfulness to God and, and uh, disobedience to the king. The Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace. Daniel later we'll see in the lion's den. And that brings us to the center. So what is so, so for 73 points, what's so important about the center of a chiastic structure? Yeah, that's the main point. 
See, when we write, we write like from beginning to end and make our main point at the end. We might give a thesis at the beginning and then bring our conclusion at the end and build to it. Ancient, in the ancient world, their main point so often is right in the middle, right at the center of that chiastic structure. And what is the center of this? It's, it's Gentile kings being judged. One was Nebuchadnezzar. One was um, Belshazzar. Nebuchadnezzar is judged. And we're going to get into the weeds and the detail of that tonight. He's judged, finds a place of repentance, and is restored. Belshazzar is judged, does not find a place of repentance, and is removed. And so we're going to see this. And so what is it telling us? What is this message? So in chapter 2, there's a troubling dream. Um, There's messages from the gods in the ancient world. When they have a troubling dream, that's what they believe. There's messages from the gods. Life, uh, their life or the kingdom depend on figuring this out. So I like this summary from Dr. Lennox. You get a survey in chapter 2. There's literally a survey of the whole course of the Gentile imperial power. There's four kingdoms that are formed of a giant colossal man. You remember the giant colossal man in the dream? And had a gold, uh, uh, upper arms of silver, midsection of bronze, and then the legs of uh, iron, and finally the feet mixed with iron and clay. And so that's a fatal weakness of the image of man. The image of man... Uh, uh, standing on the foundation of man is a fatal weakness because it's a, it's a foundation that's incoherent. It can't stand. And the whole man is ultimately destroyed by that stone that's cut out of rock. And, and you have the universal messianic kingdom that's set up in the dream. Everybody remember that in Daniel 2? And we looked at all that. What was the main point? Human kingdoms will ultimately be destroyed and taken over by God's kingdom. This was the main point. Am I staying on here? This, I got a different clicker tonight. It's... This is, I like this one better. So what was the purpose? Is that the God of heaven is the true source of wisdom and power. So as we're going through, these, these themes are going to keep coming up. So as we're going through chapter 4 tonight, are we going to see this theme of God being sovereign, of God being the true source of wisdom and power? The God of Israel, and here's the thing. God shares his wisdom, his power, his dominion with mankind. It's what he intended from the beginning is to share it with us. It's not a question of whether or not he shares this. It's a question, but he holds us accountable to it. The question is, is will we be accountable to him for what he shared with us? That's ultimately what um, uh, becomes the judgment of mankind. Um, and he will establish his kingdom, and, and his kingdom will reign sovereignly over all human kingdoms. All right. So then we get to chapter 3. What was going on in chapter 3? Is Shadrach... Um, Meshach and Abednego. Remember that story? Or Rack, Shack, and Benny? I may remember Rack, Shack, and Benny. Yeah, Veggie Tales. Um, so Nebuchadnezzar thinks that no God can deliver, especially the Jews, out of his hand. And he commands them to worship his God. He sets up this great image. Uh, and the Jews defy him. And they are, pers- they, they, they are preserved in the furnace. And what do we discover is God's ability to deliver is thereby demonstrated. Now, okay, this is a little bit of nuance. For 51 points, why was it important to show God could deliver? Who remembers? 51 points. Okay, hint number one. Where were they? Outside of their land, in exile. So why is it important to show he can deliver? Okay, but why would that be important to show in that, in that, 
from where they are. The fact that he's going to show he's sovereign over the pagan god. Why would that be important to show at that point in time? So, so already it looked like he was weaker. It looked like he couldn't deliver. Nebuchadnezzar had conquered. This is going to come up tonight. This is going to come up in our study tonight. It looked like Nebuchadnezzar, looked like Nebuchadnezzar conquered. It looked like God lost. And so Nebuchadnezzar stands up. You know what? He can, just, can take you out of the power of my hand. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what's the main point? The bottom line is no matter what, we will not bow down. If God does or did not, does not deliver, so be it. Faith in God is courageous. It's not simply cognitive. Faith in God is courageous. If you claim to have faith in God, you, uh, it takes courage to stand behind that claim. It's not something we say we believe. It's something we live. It's not based on personal benefit. We worship him alone because he alone is worthy to be worshipped. And so in the midst of that, they stand and God delivers, demonstrating that he had purpose in their being exiled. Because it was in that moment he didn't deliver. So that brings us into Daniel 4 tonight. Um, so uh, let's look at this chapter. We'll do a brief intro and then we'll read through it together. We'll read the story. So we're at the center of the um, Aramaic chiasm, right? So here we are. This is the Aramaic portion of Daniel. This is the part, part written in Aramaic, the foreign language. And we're right there at the center, Daniel 4 and Daniel 5. And these are stories about proud Gentile kings being judged. So we're, getting, we're, we're at the crux of the whole theme of this section of the, um, uh, of the chiasm. And, and so what is the heart of it? God judges Gentile kings for their pride. God holds us accountable for, for our rebellion against him. Um. So this is kind of the way I like to put this story. It's madness to deny the sovereign hand of God over the nations. Now, why did I put that? What happens to anybody, if you know the story ahead of time, what happens to Nebuchadnezzar in this story tonight? Anybody know? Yeah, he, he goes mad. And that, it's, it, it's not just arbitrary. The madness is trying to tell us something. It's trying to communicate something. What is it? It's madness to deny God's sovereign hand. And that's, that's what the story is. It's not just trying to tell you he went mad. Why did he go mad? All right? So let's look at it. So what we're going to look at is a court contest. And a court, a court contest, one of the types is when you have a, an individual of lower status who's called up to the court to solve a difficult problem and he becomes a hero. That's, a, that's, a, that's a, one of the, the motifs that's used over and over in ancient literature throughout the ancient Near East. Um, and when we see these, these motifs used in almost every story, we're going to find these motifs. All right, so what's the outline? Notice the, the story itself is put together in another chiastic structure. To me, I mean, think about the, the, the level of genius writing that's going on here to put the structure within a structure within a structure in order to communicate the messages, the themes, so that when we walk away, you want to know what the points are because you understand the structure. And so it's not for us, it's a foreign. 
we read it because we don't read st- stories written this way. But when we learn it, we can walk away. So what's going to be the main point? The main point is going to be what Daniel interprets, what Daniel takes away. So we want to pay a lot of attention to what's going on on that main point. So the story is Nebuchadnezzar's got a proclamation. Uh, he's going to report a dream. Daniel's going to interpret the dream. The dream's going to be unfulfilled. And then Nebuchadnezzar's going to have another proclamation. So you notice the, chi- the chiasm right there, right? What, the beginning, the end, or a proclamation. Um, the, the two pieces that, that uh, in the middle uh, are about um, Nebuchadnezzar reporting the dream and the dream being fulfilled. And so what stands out is Daniel's interpretation. All right. So um, there are some that say it's not a chiasm, and, and you can ask me later as to, as to why. It, what it has to do with, just to say this, is that different people – how do I say this? They put, cha- they put different sections together with other sections, but this is um, – um, uh, I'm going with this one. This is the one that makes the most sense. All right. So what is chapter 4? Chapter 4 is Nebuchadnezzar's letter. It's written from the first person of Nebuchadnezzar. So this is the, the, the in the book of Daniel. Notice the, Daniel's the one narrating the book in the first half, except when we get here. Now Nebuchadnezzar is telling the story himself. He's written this out, narrated it to Daniel, and Daniel is included. Included it in the text. Work this story in the text. All right. So what is the story? Let's read the story together. You ready? So if you have your Bibles and you want to read along in your Bibles, it's fine. You want to read along on the screen. We're going to read the story together. This is Daniel chapter 4. So Nebuchadnezzar, this is him speaking, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream... That made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. The magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in my bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew, and it became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. And I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. Just as a reminder, this is why we studied this last week. This is a, would have been someone in his mind would have been an apkalu, one of the um, one of the divine beings from heaven 
that were that were um, res- that they believed were responsible for the greatness of Babylon and the greatness of their knowledge. Yet in the scriptures, this is would be one of a divine being who would be called a heavenly being, a son of God, a member of the divine council. And so he sees this watcher, a holy one, come down from heaven. And he proclaims aloud and says thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but, the, but leave the stump of its root in the earth. Bound with a band of iron and bronze, amid the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. Let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord. May the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade and whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, in the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. Now remember, this Daniel's interpretation, this is the chiastic, this is the point to walk away from. The most heaven rules, most high rules. All this came upon Nebuchadnezzar, the, inter- the fulfillment of the dream. 
At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace at Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with dew, with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, this is his testimony now, at the end, lifted my eyes. Am I off? At the end, thank you. At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honor him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. Remember we talked last week about the supernatural worldview of the Bible. The hosts of heaven is referring to all of the heavenly beings as well as all the dwellers on earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. So that's Nebuchadnezzar's letter. That's chapter 4. This is what narrated by him. So you see the movements through this? Nebuchadnezzar, it starts off with him proclaiming. And we, um, in this proclamation, this, this, by the way, this letter follows a pattern. It follows the pattern of royal letters. It's a standard format of the period. It begins with the sender's name. It, it has the recipient's names. It has a salutation, and there's a body to the letter. And uh, which, we, which we read earlier, I, Nebuchadnezzar, to all nations. I'm not going to go through it again. And then the remainder of the letter is a reflection back of his experiences um, after his entering. Now, we have this thing at the beginning and the end. These are doxologies. Doxologies are short hymns of praise. Um, that's what the word means. And we see him at the beginning and the end. And it starts off. He starts off right from the beginning. He's telling everybody, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonder. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. This is how he starts in the beginning. He starts with this word of praise, this doxology to God, before he tells this story. And then he ends with the same type of of doxology the same hymn of praise at the end of days i nebuchadnezzar lifted my eyes to heaven my reason returned to me i blessed the most high and praise and honor him and he goes on and he says all the inhabit uh, um oops i skipped it 
Praise and honor him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven, among the the inhabitants of the earth. And none can say, uh, uh, none can stay his hand or say to him, what have I done? Now, these are something, these proclamations, these hymns of praise, are something called an inclusio. An inclusio, it's, it's a way in ancient writing, it's a way they bracketed a story or something they're trying to tell you. If, you. if you go to the very first chapter of the Bible, it starts off with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when you move from chapter 1 to chapter 2, it'll say, and this was the creation of the heavens and the earth. It's an inclusio. And you'll see these all throughout the Bible. You'll see them in all kinds of ancient writings. And they give you the key themes and the focus of what they're talking about. Well, why might you do that? Well, like you're going to get into this story, and it's really disturbing. It's really disturbing what happens to him and what he goes through. But he's telling you from the very beginning, no, it's not. It was disturbing because I deserved it as being disturbing. It's the God of heaven you need to understand. It was, I was getting, uh, uh, I was receiving in myself the just due for my actions. The message in between reinforces what's being said in the inclusio. The eternal kingdom of God and his sovereignty over it. Nebuchadnezzar's kingship and kingdom are only temporary. God's kingdom lasts forever. He will do as is pleasing to him. No one can thwart him. Um, So this is a repeating theme that we see throughout the whole book. Why is that important? Why might that be a repeating theme in the book of Daniel? Okay, so this is worth, uh, I'll give 84 points for this one. This is really good. So this, you, you can rack up some points in this answer. Why might that be an important theme? These, these themes, the sovereignty of God, God moving as he pleases. Why might that be really important in the book of Daniel? Enforcing the main point, but why would they need it reinforced? You're absolutely right. Why would they need it reinforced? Yes. They're in the middle of worldly circumstances in which a foreign king conquered them and carried them out of land and in exile. It doesn't look like God's in control. It looks like he's lost control. And yet, from the beginning of the end of the book, what we see is that God uses even those things which don't appear to be good for his good purposes to demonstrate his goodness and his greatness to call individuals to repentance. Nebuchadnezzar was clearly in a state of rebellion to God, and he used this circumstance to call him out of his rebellion to God in order to restore him. He's the one who gave Nebuchadnezzar this kingdom. To rule rightly, to rule justly, to rule righteously. And he was holding him account for it. And because he was a person who would hear, he ends up in a place of repentance. So, um, God, there's a second thing that's going on here that's really important with Daniel. He's radically changing the way the world is understood. In the ancient world, they understood your gods were as powerful as your ability to rule your land. If my country attacked your country, my nation attacked your nation, my empire attacked your nation, um, empire, the one that won had the bigger, stronger gods. But what, what ultimately is God demonstrating lasts forever? The rule of land? No. Lands get destroyed. Gods of the lands get destroyed. What ultimately lasts forever? 
God's demonstrating that the greatest power is not the ability to rule lands, but it's the greatest power is his word. It's his word that is eternal. Why? He prophesied this was going to happen. He says, unless you repent, this is what's going to happen. Unless you hear my word, this is what's going to happen. It's his word that stands eternal. It's his word that upholds um, uh, the entire universe. And this is a transformation of thinking going on right here in the midst of the book of Daniel. His eternal word is not tied to what happens in a land or in a temple or in a kingdom or a people. It's tied to him keeping his promises regardless of what people do. But calling people to enjoy the fruit of those promises. He calls us to enjoy the fruit of those promises, to to enter into relationship with him, to be restored to him. uh, Somebody put it, here's another way of putting it, a real simple way of putting it. God's word is true. You can either choose to live by it or not. You can live by it. You can just, I don't, I'm not going to live by it. Why would I want to live by it? Or, yeah, I want to embrace it. I'm going to live by it. Either way, you end up proving it. Either way, you end up proving it. So, Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Um, uh, God literally is telling Nebuchadnezzar. Remember we said this, that it's his word that's standing? God's telling Nebuchadnezzar before it even happens. He gave him a dream. Nebuchadnezzar had full will and choice to decide to, uh, I was like, in fact, he was so disturbed by this dream. Remember, dreams are really important in the ancient world. They're life or death. You had to get interpretations. Kingdoms rise and fall on dreams. So God used the thing that was most important to him to give him an important message. And what did he do? He squandered it. He squandered it. But what is it saying? God's word will stand whether we choose it or not. So, the tree dream. So, we need to break this tree dream down. This is cool. So, we talked about, again, we talked about dreams in the ancient Near East. These were, these were considered messages from the gods. Life or death. In, um, uh, uh, how many remember the story of Joseph with Pharaoh having the dream? Okay, this is another example. Here's Pharaoh. He has these dreams. And he's like, somebody's got to tell me. This is way too important. i got to know what these dreams mean. Somebody's got to tell me. What do they do? They go get Joseph. They clean him up. They bring him. And Joseph is, you know, and, and notice the motif. Another court contest. Someone of a lower status who's brought in. He solves the, solves the, the mystery of the day and has risen up to be a hero. Same motif that's used in the story. All right. So, now this is Nebuchadnezzar's second dream we've come to. Remember, the second chapter was his first dream, right? The big colossal man. This is the second dream that he's come to. So what's the backdrop going on here? I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. Okay? So this is a little little different at this point. In the first dream, he was early in his career. How many remember what Nebuchadnezzar refused to do with the first dream? This is uh, worth uh, 19 points. Yeah, he was like, I'm not telling you to dream. You're the wise man. You tell me what the dream was. So he was early in his career at that time. He didn't know who he could trust. He hadn't yet become the head of gold that he dreamt about. He was still on his way up. But now he's prospered. He's in his palace. He's now the head of gold he dreamt about in the first dream. He's at the height of his career. It's like, look at everything I've accomplished and look at all that I have done. So... There's no threat to his role. He's, um, life is good. And then he has a terrifying dream in the middle of life being good. What does this mean? Where is this? And, and he's got all these questions. Now, um, 
Dr. Witter brings brings this point up, and I think it's really interesting. When you read in there, and and his his magicians couldn't interpret it, because um, you read the dream, and it's 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 kind of obvious what the what the interpretation is going to be. She she goes, I wonder how many of them actually might have had an inkling in what's going on, but they weren't going to be the ones to tell them. <laughs> They're like, I'm not telling them. Oh, King, what a horrible dream. Wish we could help. <laughs> I find I just thought that was an interesting thought, you know, which is possible. Why? Part of what's going on is in the ancient world when they would interpret dreams, they would turn to their gods. This clearly wasn't a dream that came from a motif from one of their gods. It clearly didn't follow that motif. Um, so, so the king turns to Daniel. Now, did you notice about three or four times it says he has the spirit of the gods. Has the spirit of the gods. Now, some of yours, if you're reading along, will smooth that over and it'll say it has the spirit of God um, in it. Um, a spirit, spirit of the gods is a is a, a better interpretation. It's mentioned five times, um, and a, at least five times. It's mentioned in the, this chapter, next chapter, and some more in, ch- in um, chapter six as well. Um, uh, the, the point being is Daniel, in, in, this isn't, what's going on here, in, it's the context, Nebuchadnezzar is a pagan king. He recognizes there's something different and distinct about Daniel. This is what's being said by this phrase. Furthermore, the word gods, um, uh, remember, it doesn't mean, in, in our mind, we're hearing something different than would have been spoken. The word Elohim in Hebrew simply means an inhabitant of the spiritual world. That's all Elohim means. Now, there is a unique, specific Elohim named Yahweh. He is unlike any others. Why he's called the what? The Elohim of Elohim, the God of gods, the Lord of lords. He is the only uncreated creator of all things. The word God doesn't mean those unique characteristics. It just means an inhabitant of the spiritual world. In, you, in the Bible, the word Elohim is used of, uh, of the spirits of dead humans. It's used of demons. It's used of an, uh, um, what we would call angels. It's used in multiple ways. And it's always used in a way that refers to a spirit. So when it says he has the spirit of the gods, this watcher just came down. This would have been one of the gods in his mind. A spiritual being, a heavenly being, a being from the heavenly realm. Daniel sees things from the unknown world. He has access to this supernatural world. Somehow, the, the, he can touch into the spiritual world. And he knows it's connected to the fact that he, he has, uh, to who his God is. His access, because he's connected to who he's got is. It's, it's, so I'm, I'm, I'm explaining this, because we can walk away in English and we read it, and he's going, he has the spirit of the gods in him. Are the gods real? What is this talking about? It's a, it's, when you understand it in its context, it makes a whole lot more sense. No one else could do what Daniel do. All right, so he talks about this tree. Now, trees are really important in ancient Near Eastern uh, uh, literature. In the Bible, they use the tree motif over and over and over again. Trees are almost always connected to the heavens, to gods and kings. To the heavenly, to God and kings. Where, when, in, in anybody, so this is worth, uh, so um, 57 points. I don't think I've ever used 57 before. Where... Do, uh, where does so much false worship go on in Israel, knowing that we're talking about what we're talking about here? 
The high places, where are they? Almost always. Do what? Under trees. Under trees. They're connected to trees. And if you remember in the dream, this tree reaches to where? Reaches to the heavens. This tree reaches to the heavens. And what does it do? It's able to feed everything everywhere. Now, okay, so for put your thinking caps on for 48 points. Where's the first place we see a tree in the Bible? Eden. We see two. We see multiple trees, but two specific ones. What are the two specific ones? Do what? Tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Very good. So 15 points apiece, 30 points right there, Marco. Uh, so the tree of life, catch the, can you connect, catch the connections between this tree and the tree of life? All the birds of the field, every, everybody's being fed, everybody's being taken care of. It catches, it connects to the heavens. It spreads out everywhere. Now we're going to see a really, really fascinating connection. We're going to see another connection um, between what's going on with this tree, the, the, this, uh, this luxurious center of the earth that this tree is called here. Um, uh, this is this is a scholar, John Golden Gay. A lofty, preeminent, verdant, protective, fruitful, long-lived tree is a common symbol for the living, transcendent, life-giving, sustaining cosmos or reality or deity itself. Gods and kings. Why kings? Because kings represent gods. Kings represent gods. So um, a tree equals a king. Rain, uh, reigning as a representative of a God. He's mediating the life of the gods to people. He's giving life. He's giving prov- protection. He's giving the pr- provision of the God. So Nebuchadnezzar um, is looking at how big Babylon is, how far-reaching is. He's now the head of gold. He's the head of gold. He's the greatest kingdom among men. And he is actually known as one of the greatest kings, if not the greatest king in antiquity. If you go and you study ancient Babylon, they have one of the wonders of the world, their hanging gardens, the things they were able to accomplish in their time. Amazing feats. He's not wrong for sitting back and being amazed at what Babylon accomplished. He's wrong for who gets the credit. He's not wrong for how great they were. He's wrong for taking credit for it himself. He, was, he was, sees himself as the beneficent center of the world. Now, what he would have been aware of, what he would have known, is something really fascinating. And this is an article from 550, 587 B.C. This is an article against Egypt. And this is the prophet Ezekiel speaking. And Ezekiel is warning Pharaoh. And he's warning Pharaoh. He says, Pharaoh, you're about to be just like Assyria. Now, why Nebuchadnezzar would have been aware of that is because he's going to tell, he's going to tell him, you're about to be like Assyria, who was a great tree that was cut down by my vessel. Guess who was God's vessel to cut down the tree of Assyria? Nebuchadnezzar. Babylon. It was prophesied that Assyria was a great tree that would be cut down by his vessel. And guess who was the vessel of God who cut that great tree down? Babylon. So is not there irony going on here that he dreams of the very thing he was a vessel of? Because of his own pride. He's already seen it before. He's seen a nation who was set up to be the hand of God, who ignored God and was cut down by his own hand. 
See, these are things in the story. You just read the story. If you don't know the backstory, you miss. Hmm. So I'm going to read a little bit of that story here. Son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his multitude, whom, who, uh, whom are you like in your greatness? And behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon with beautiful branches and forest shade and of towering height and its top in the clouds. The waters nourished it. The deep made it grow tall, making its rivers flow around the place of its planting, sending forth its streams to all the trees of the field. It towered high above all the trees of the field. Its boughs grew large and its branches long from abundant water in its shoots. All the birds of the heavens made their nest in its boughs. Under its branches, all the priests of the field gave birth to their young. Under its shadow lived all great nations. It was beautiful in its greatness, in its length of its branches, for its roots went down to abundant waters. The cedars of the garden of God could not rival it, nor the fir trees equal its boughs. Neither were the plane trees like its branches. No tree in the garden of God was its equal in beauty. Notice, again, Drawing the motif of trees all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Notice that tree of life connection. I made it beautiful in the mass of its branches. And all the trees of Eden envied it that were in the Garden of God. Thus, therefore, says the Lord God, because it towered high and set its top among the clouds and its heart was proud of its height. I will give it into the hand of a mighty one of the nations. He shall surely deal with it as its wickedness deserves. I have cast it out. Foreigners, the most ruthless of nations, have cut it down and left it. On the mountains, in all the valleys, its branches have fallen, and its boughs have been broken in all the ravines of the land, and all the peoples of the earth have gone away from its shadow and left it. On its fallen trunk dwell all the birds of the heavens, and on its branch all the beasts of the fields. Uh, all of this in order that no trees by the waters may grow to towering height or set their tops among the clouds, and that no trees that drink water may reach up to the height of them, for they are all given over to death to the world below among the children of men with those who go down to the pit. So um, now I'm going to throw in one more little piece of connection here that's going to connect us to later on in the Bible. There's this prophecy It's in Isaiah. If you go read Isaiah 10, you're going to read about this great tree that ends up getting cut down. That great tree, um, again, is uh, uh, Assyria. And then it's going to talk about some more great trees that get cut down. And that great tree that gets cut down is Israel. But it says there's a shoot that's going to grow up out of that great tree that's cut down. It's called the, um, the root or the shoot of Jesse. Hmm. In Hebrew, uh, another name for it is um, the netzer, the branch. There's another Hebrew word, and you see over and over the prophets referring to the netzer, the branch. Who is that? That's right. That's Yeshua. That's Jesus. That's the Messiah. From this cut-down tree tree that's cut down is dead what's going to happen out of it comes a shoot resurrection life that ends up being the tree that's the great tree that is a return literally to the tree in the garden this motif of trees is hugely important in the bible read your bible pay attention to trees kings and gods kings and gods over and over again it's huge 
It's a, probably one of the keys um, when it says um, um, that um, uh, that Jesus is uh, born or, or grew up. wasn't born. He grew up in the town of Nazareth. Where, where did Nazareth get its name? It's, we don't know for, for for a fact, but etymologically, this actually makes a lot of good sense. A lot of the descendants of King David. Um, because of persecution, because of what was going on in and around Jerusalem, you know, Herod was killing all um, competition to the throne. They moved from the region of Bethlehem, which would have been their family area, up to Nazareth. And there were a lot of inhabitants, from descendants of David, that lived up in that area. This is why Mary and Joseph were both there when um, she got pregnant, when the Holy Spirit came upon her. But why Nazareth? What's Nazareth have to tell us about it? Nazareth very likely the root of it it's is netzer so think it uh think in english here's the way you put it in english branch town tree town branch town now when you read jesus was from branch town why because he's the branch been prophesied over and over the branch look up the branch do a word study on the branch and the prophets you'll see so much it's amazing all right oh that was all free that was extra let's get back to being here but it's all connected. I want us to make those connections. So the Watcher. We spoke in depth last week about the Watcher. I'm just going to bring in these couple of little things. So in, throughout Daniel, there's heavenly beings. There are messengers from God. There's holy ones. There, and there's these angelic Watchers. And there's more. Who are the Watchers? We learned, as we studied in depth last week, the other titles for them in the, in the scriptures are the sons of God, divine beings, holy ones, heavenly beings, divine counsel. We made all those connections last week. Um, now, watcher is also a very common term for this being in extra biblical literature, literature outside of the Bible, especially Second Temple Jewish literature. Um, and so there's a double irony by using the title watcher. There's a double irony going on in the story here. I mean, when you stop and think about it, it's almost humorous. It's a way of kind of putting humor into the story. So the watchers in ancient, we talked about, again, we hit this last week. In ancient Mesopotamia, to the Babylonians, the watchers were their heroes. The watchers, the Apkalu, were responsible for their great knowledge, which made them a great people. That's why they saw themselves above every other people on earth. Because they had this knowledge that came from the Apkalu. Okay. Now this is an, this is completely ironic. And the second thing, and I'll tell you why that's ironic in a minute. But the second reason it's ironic is this: is that that word watcher? It's it's not signifying keeping watch. It means one who is awake. That's what it means. It's it's etymology is one who is awake, not one who's keeping watch. Now, why is this double irony? What is this double irony? Well, first, these ones who are the heroes are the one bringing judgment. The ones that they see were responsible for the greatness are the ones saying, King, you're not so great. That, 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 that is meant to be picked up as like ironic humor that's going on in the story. The second thing is, when does he see this one that's awake? When he's asleep. He's in a dream. He's sleeping and he's seeing one. It's, we're supposed to be getting this kind of uh, um, metaphorical humor that's coming out of this, that's telling part of the story. These little details in the story are revealing to us 
the meaning of the story. Being asleep, he has blinded himself to God's sovereignty. It's a metaphor for having an animal mind. Why be given the madness of an animal? Because he's blinded himself. He's left the human mind. Being awake is what? Recognizing the sovereignty of God. It's a metaphor to returning to his right mind. This is what the story's using the symbol. It doesn't just like, hey, well, why don't we just like um, make him have a mind of an animal? Yeah, that would be a good idea. No, there's meaning to it. And the meaning to it is, is by, by taking credit for what God has done and not recognizing who he is, is the same thing as having lost your mind. Tree stump. What's that tree stump about? Well, quite frankly, we don't actually know. We've lost it. Um, but what we do know is that since it's bound with the irons and fetters, um, what clearly it has some type of connection to is the fact the stump doesn't go away. Okay? It's not, in other words, it's dead, it's cut off, but there's a temporariness. There's something that's holding it there, awaiting for him to come to a point in which it's restored. Okay? So, but we don't, we don't, um, we haven't, we don't know the full meaning of what it would have intended to the original readers. All right. The field. You have this field, it contains the stump. The human mind becomes an animal for seven periods of time. Um, again, uh, the seven periods of time, it just says periods of time. Mo- most people project that that was seven years. It could have been seven years. It could have been seven seasons of some sort. It just says seven periods of time. It's not exact enough for us to say. A lot of people want to stick with the seven years, but um, there's other connections to, as to why, why to that. Um, so, um, all right, let's get into Daniel's interpretation here. Uh, no, there was something else I wanted to point out about that. What was it? All right, we'll get there. All right, so Daniel's interpretation, part one. What time we got? All right, we're good. We got a few minutes left. Daniel's interpretation. Daniel knows immediately what this dream means, and it disturbs him. Remember, it's like he's like, "Oh," and the king's like, "Listen, Daniel, just just say it, just say it. I can tell it's disturbing you. Just say it." Immediately knows one. What's going on? Daniel has affection for Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't want to tell him. We'll see this really come out in contrast to what he does in the next chapter when he talks to Belshazzar. This is a complete contrast to how he talks to Belshazzar. But there's a relationship he has. Now, that should shock us. It's meant to shock us. Why? It's his captor. It's the person who took him in exile. And he's like, oh, king. I hope this isn't about you. Yeah, well, it is, but I'm trying to be nice. There's, there's affection that's going on here. And it's coming out in the story. He should be, you know, from the perspective of being a captor, he should be pleased that this is going to happen to him. But from the perspective of being faithful to Yahweh, who has enabled him to have effect on this king, he's built this relationship because it's where God brought him. And he's demonstrated this affection. So I'm going to ask, how many of us, are able to say, we pray for those who persecute us. We bless those who curse us.
We speak blessing over those who would do good, evil to us. How many of us would say, oh, you want me to walk one? How about if I walk two? Oh, you want my, my jacket? Do you need a shirt? Oh, that hurt. Do you need to hit me again? How many of us would say, after months and months of them planning your death, Lord, forgive them. They don't really know what they're doing. How many of us would say, stones raining down on our body, intent to killing us, and they do. Lord, don't hold this against them. That's what Daniel's demonstrating. You see, we said earlier that faith is courageous. Faith is courageous. It's that kind of faith that actually changes. It's, it's, you see, the love and the hatred of the world is not changed. I'm sorry, the, the fear and the hatred of the world is not changed by more fear and hatred. It's covered. It says love covers a multitude of sins. It's covered. It breaks it down. All right. Um, Notice the difference in how Nebuchadnezzar tells the story and how Daniel retells the story. Whenever something is repeated in the Bible, it's repeated because we're supposed to pay attention. And so what's really important is when it's repeated and it's a little different. Why is it different? What's it trying to tell us by repeating it differently? Now, that's the key to Hebrew poetry, by the way. It's the, it's the whole basis of Hebrew poetry, the basic couplet. But that's a conversation for another time. We won't go there tonight. Um, uh, but remembering repetition, it gives us clues to the deeper meanings. All right. So there's something glaring going on in the text here. Daniel specifically leaves out the fact that the king's going to go mad. He leaves that out when he retells it. I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you a parallel. You're going to see it. And it's like, oh, my goodness, he really did. Why? Well, the meaning uh, uh, is obvious. It's literally the most painful part of the dream. The most painful part is you're going to go mad. Um, and there's no good reason for him to say it out loud. Just the fact... Okay, the fact that God has decreed this is going to happen to someone is not reason to jump on the bandwagon and say, get it right, bud. Where's the love and the compassion in that? How does that lead someone to repentance? They just heard it. They know it. There's a tenderness that's coming out here that's intended to lead him to repentance because of the kindness in what he's doing. Check it out. We're going to look at this. I'm going to take you line by line. We're going to look at these verses line by line. So K.N. is King Nebuchadnezzar. D. is Daniel. King Nebuchadnezzar said, but leave, this is him telling the story and then Daniel repeating it. But leave the stump of its root in the earth, Daniel says, but leave the stump of its root in the earth. King Nebuchadnezzar says, bound with a band of iron and bronze. Daniel says, bound with a band of iron and bronze. King Nebuchadnezzar says, among the tender grass of the field. Daniel says, in the tender grass of the field. King Nebuchadnezzar says, let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Daniel says, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven. 
Nebuchadnezzar says, let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Daniel says, let his portion be with the beasts of the field. King Nebuchadnezzar says, let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. Daniel says, silence. Doesn't repeat that. It's the worst part of the, it's the, worst part of the sentence. He doesn't need to re- repeat it. He knows it's going to happen. He's having compassion and mercy on a person who's in the middle of judgment. How do we treat those in the middle of judgment? How should we? Nebuchadnezzar says, and let seven periods of time pass over him. Daniel says, till seven periods of time pass over him. Nebuchadnezzar says, this is a sentence by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones. Catch this. Daniel says, in this interpretation, O king, it was a decree of the most high. Notice the difference. This makes the connection we were talking about before. The watchers are carrying out, enacting God's decision. And Daniel's pointing that out, making the connection for us. So isn't that cool? So pay attention when you see these repeats and see what's there and what's not there. All right. The second part of Daniel's interpretation. Let's jump into this. So um, we're going to look at uh, these connections between considering the the relationship between Daniel 2 and Daniel 4. What do we get in Daniel 2? You got this magnificent statue. And Daniel prepares to uh, interpret um, that dream. When he's preparing to interpret the the dream about this whole colossal man, he says, You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory. So notice he's saying, You're the king of kings to whom God of heaven has given kingdom, power, might, and glory. And into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them, you are the head of gold. So, remember in the tree, he's all of these things? The children, man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, he's ruling over this as the greater this. Remember all this? So, these dreams have these connections. As the colossal man, the head of gold, he's these things. As the tree, he's these things. In Daniel 4, however, the dream isn't about all about human history. It's specifically about Nebuchadnezzar this time. This dream is specifically just about him. And what does Nebuchadnezzar say this time? I mean, what does Daniel say this time? The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached the heavens, and it was visible to the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and which was the food for all, under which the beast of the field found shade, and whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. You notice all those similarities, right? And he says this, It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. Now, let's catch this here. In Daniel, in chapter 2, God gives dominion and power and might and glory. God gave mankind animals to care, to care for. All of this, God gave this in chapter 2. God gave all of this to Daniel. In chapter 4, Daniel acknowledges that Nebuchadnezzar has cared for people, cared for the animals, has a vast kingdom. But he leaves out, did you notice it doesn't say in Daniel chapter 4 that Daniel doesn't say God gave it to him. He doesn't say that. Go back and check it out. I'm not going to right now. Go back and check. In the first one, God gave you this so that you can do this, head of gold. In the second one, he says, you are that great kingdom who's done all these things. Daniel leaves out the fact God gave it to him. Why? See, again, these things are not left out 
um, by accident. There's a reason why Daniel's leaving this out. It's trying to give us the message of the story. What's the message of the story? Because that's exactly the king's problem. The king left God out of it. You see, Daniel is repeating to him, you've left God out of it. Yes, you have all these things, and you've left, by telling him this and leaving God out, it's telling us that's Nebuchadnezzar's issue. That's his problem. It's glaringly missing from the story because it's glaringly missing from Nebuchadnezzar. God allowed him to be the head of a gold, yet in his pride he credits himself. There's the issue. We now, remember I told you, Daniel's interpretation is the center of the chiasm. It's the whole point. It's the whole thing we're supposed to take out of this. The king is filled with pride. He's not acknowledging God. So, the fulfillment. Uh, Daniel concludes his interpretation with an opportunity to repent. Right? He, the king... Um, it's not solicit. The dream doesn't uh, solicit. You know, the watcher doesn't say, "Hey, you can repent." The king didn't ask for a chance to repent. Um, you know, but but maybe, maybe the dream, maybe it can be delayed. Maybe it can be avoided. Um, it's interesting because in Daniel doing that, in giving him the opportunity to repent, he's actually fulfilling the office of a prophet. That's what a prophet does. He speaks the word of judgment and says, "But repent, return, shuv teshuvah, return to God." Due to delay and fulfillment, which it doesn't happen right away, it's possible that the king actually does repent at first because it doesn't immediately happen. You know, it's possible he walks away and goes, dang, I better get this right. God's giving him an opportunity. But nonetheless, he comes to the point where he revels in his glory. He revels in the greatness of Babylon. He takes all the credit for himself. And immediately you have a back call. You have a voice from heaven. You have a dream that is fulfilled completely to the point that its desired effect occurs. His my, uh, um, he, he, until, uh, 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 until he comes to the place of realizing God is God, his mind is, um, uh, um, is um, like an animal's. And finally his mind is restored and the king praises God and gives God alone the glory. Now, I want to say this because I'm going to add this here. Because um, it's part of the fulfillment. That the 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 um, uh, the prophecy that he would have in mind of an animal and eat grass like a uh, like a cow. By the way, that's an actual real mental illness. That isn't actual. It's bovine. It's a there's a bovine disease um, illness in which people believe they are cows and. Um, and actually eat grass, seek to eat grass like a cow. Look it up. This is an actual mental diagnosis. This isn't just something fanciful in a dream. This is an actual mental diagnosis that people live through and go through today. Find that, that um, uh, you know, why I bring that up is people go, well, these stories with silly. Nobody would do that. Who could live that way? There are people living that way right now. I'm not snow. I'm not making the connection that they're cursed of God or something like that by that. It's horrible to go through any kind of mental illness. It's, it's very difficult, very horrible. I'm not making that. I'm not making light of it. What I'm, ma- what I'm saying is the story is not talking about something implausible. It's actually talking about something that happens. Um, and that's an important note to walk away with. Um, in fact, and we're not going to get into it tonight, in fact, it's some scholars question who the king might have been because there are 
stories of Babylonian kings who went through a similar kind of mental illness. They found, found uh, some details in the, uh, the scrolls in Qumran, uh, the prayer in Nabonidus. Um, but anyway, that's beyond ask me later if you want. All right, so we're going to close out. Um, so we come now to the closing doxology, that closing hymn. We have the eternal sovereignty of God. We have God's rule over all of earth. It's God's prerogative to do as he wills. Um, you've got human. What's going on here is you have human and you have divine sovereignty. God gives and removes both with his power. Human sovereignty comes because God's given it. Human sovereignty um, is removed because God takes it. The point is, is that kings are supposed to be good agents of God's rule on earth. Go check out Psalm 2. Read Psalm 2. It's the introductory, the, the first, uh, I forget how many, the first several chapters in Psalm, I think it's first 10. The first 10 Psalms are an introduction to the rest of the Psalms. And they set up the, you know, the, the Davidic royalty in Israel and who the king is. Um, and when you read Psalm 2, what's he say? He's the kings of the earth uh, have um, um, want to throw off God. They want to throw off his bounds. They want to deny his son. And it says God sits in the heavens and laughs in derision. Um, now, uh, what do I take from that? I take from that the same thing that I hope I would have taken with it if I was carried off to exile into Babylon. I'm looking around at me going, okay, your word says you're sovereign, yet I'm in a place that doesn't feel very sovereign. I take from that a couple of the plus, some, there's, there's a lot of weird scriptures, right? To me, this is one of the weird scriptures. Joseph, it says this. Go check it out. It's in, it's in, um, it's in Genesis. You can see it for yourself. It says this. It says Joseph was, was thrown into a pit. His brothers were going to kill him. One of them decides to save him. They sell him to their cousins. And the cousins take him down to Egypt and sell him as a slave to Potiphar, to, to an Egyptian, the Egyptian guard of Pharaoh. And um, uh, so he has zero chance of ever getting back to his family at this point, ever. He's just been carried out, carried away in exile. And this is what the scripture says. It says, he was carried off, made a slave, sold a slave, and it says, and the Lord was with him. How many of us are in that circumstance going, oh, God's with me? Yes! How many of you are in that? We've got to stop and read what his words are on the page. That's weird. That's what it says. Well, that might Yeah, God's with me. I'm never getting home. I'm sold as a slave in a foreign country. And what does he do? He serves God right there. Because God was with him. You see, when we look around us and we look at the kings of the earth and we go, it doesn't look like God would put that person in that place. What are we saying? Where's God? Why God? Do you, why do you look so weak? Why are you waiting so long? Why are you allowing this to happen? Or are we saying, God's with us. <laughs> what are you going to do, God? Because I can't see it right now. <laughs> right now, this looks weird and strange, and I have no idea what you're doing, but... I know you're bigger than this. Okay, there's another place. Does the same thing, right? So Joseph does it right. See, he does it right. He serves Potiphar. 
Potiphar literally makes him the ruler of his house. There is nothing in his entire house that he is not over under Potiphar the guard except one person. His wife. Off limits. Don't touch. And he follows that. He obeys that. But the wife, she's not so keen on this. And she tries and she tries and he stays faithful. And then she accuses him of the very thing he refused to do. And he gets falsely thrown in jail. And it says this. And he was thrown in jail. And the Lord was with him. Weird. Not my first words at that moment. Should be. Should be. Because that was the very place that led him to save the world. That was the very place that led him to save the world. That was the very place that leads to Passover. That leads to Sinai. That moment. That's the seed of it. Long after he's gone, hundreds of years after he's gone, that moment led to that moment. We may never know why we're in the circumstances or situations we're in. We, never, we may never know why, but we can know the Lord is with us and he is sovereign. He is the ruler over the kings of this earth and he will establish his kingdom. And he has put you and me here at this time for his purposes. Do we know the Lord is with us? Daniel did. And guess what? Nebuchadnezzar found out too. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar found out too. And that's the center in the heart of this Aramaic chiasm, this whole part that's written in the language of the world, a Gentile king was judged for his pride, and the first one discovers the will of God. Kings should not be surprised to be taken down when they become full of pride and usurp the praise of God, though God will allow, will allow some to endure. And that's the end of the story of Nebuchadnezzar. It's interesting. The book ends right here with Nebuchadnezzar. We don't hear any more about Nebuchadnezzar. This is where Nebuchadnezzar ends. We're going to, next week, we're going to get into Belshazzar. And this is a different king at a different time of Babylon. And we're going to get to the end of Babylon because of Belshazzar. Babylon's over. The head of gold is gone after this next king. So what's the point? It's madness to deny, to deny God. It's madness to deny his power, his grace, and his glory. It's madness to deny what he has given. It's madness to take credit take credit for what he is and what he has done for ourselves. Amen? Father, we bless you. Father, we bless you. Wake us from our madness. Help us to be awake like the watcher. Help us to trust that you are good and you have good purposes and you are going to bring those good purposes about. Even when we can't see it, even when we don't know it, even when it doesn't make sense to us. Help us to have compassion on those who are experiencing your judgment. For that's the power of the cross, and it's the power of the cross that is the power to overcome. It is the Lamb who was slain 
that becomes the Lion of Judah. You have passed the seed unto us. Help us to live in your light, in your love, in your life. Help us to live in truth, goodness, and beauty. Help us to demonstrate your power. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Sally, tell me when we're turned off.